0: Hello, I'm Dr Tom Rawson, and you're listening to Jamilcast, the podcast exploring the advances in the world of public health science, as told by the scientists themselves here at Imperial College London's Jamil Institute. Over the course of this series, we'll be learning about disease forecasting, AI technologies, health economics, health system strengthening, and pandemic preparedness. Before we can start telling you about where we're going, though, it's helpful to know where we've been. Today, we speak with our director, Professor Neil Ferguson, a mathematical epidemiologist who has worked at the front line of disease outbreak response for almost 30 years now. By looking back at some of the biggest global health challenges of the past 30 years, we'll learn about how the field has grown and developed, how each outbreak and pandemic has helped expand our capabilities, and what we still need to learn for the challenges ahead. Let's get started.
1: Well, I've been working in infectious diseases since 1995, so going on for 30 years. But before that, um, my undergraduate degree was actually in physics, and then my PhD was in mathematical physics. I switched partly because I was working in quite an abstract area of theoretical physics and I wanted to apply my mathematical and computational skills to something which had more, let's say, short-term applications to improving the world. And and specifically, I'd seen an interesting talk by uh, Robert May, who then went on to become a government chief scientific advisor and president of the Royal Society on using mathematical modelling to model the HIV pandemic. I knew nothing about the use of mathematics in biology before that and it just inspired me to think that this was a kind of interesting and at that point very
0: much a nascent area which which i could contribute to now in the world of public health you never have to wait long to contribute that same year saw growing concern in the uk about cases of mad cow disease appearing in humans public health bodies had incomplete information and urgently needed insight into the true scale of the outbreak the sort of insight that computer simulations, mathematical models could provide.
1: Very quickly, I moved to work on BSE or mad cow disease. I mean, that had been a disease in cattle, been going on for years. At the time I started working on it in 1995, I and my colleagues, Crystal Donnelly and Roy Anderson, looked at what is a very slow moving outbreak. The challenge was that only a small portion of infected animals were being detected, and the first assessment Crystal and I did was of you know what was the true scale of the outbreak, you know what proportion of the UK cattle herd had been infected, and then secondly, what what were the risk mitigation measures which could be adopted? The time pressure in that case, as is often the case in the work we do, is around the pressure from government. In that case, the European Union to get some better situational awareness of the level of threat in order to make decisions rapidly. I mean, the other more general challenge is that the field was nowhere near as advanced as it is today. And so we were developing all the models and methods basically from scratch. In addition, computers were far, far less powerful than today. The sorts of methods we now adopt, due to huge developments in Bayesian statistics and computer power for calibrating infectious disease model and testing them and validating them, would have been impossible. 25 years ago even, um, just because of how computationally intensive they are. I mean, to be honest, my phone has more computer power than the workstation I was using back in 1995. The
0: work had proved the value of these mathematical simulations, helping give policymakers insight into what epidemiological scenarios could plausibly explain the data that they were seeing. It would not be long until such skills were urgently needed again. In 2001, the UK saw a large outbreak of foot and mouth disease spreading across large areas of the country. Neil and his team's modelling expertise was once again called on, in a format that would go on to shape the way that models inform public health responses to this day. Within the UK,
1: it was the first time when three different groups, Imperial College, Cambridge uh, and then Edinburgh, were working on the same disease outbreak together but it was the first time in the UK where that occurred in the framework of an advisory committee which was informing government decision making and it was a very intensive time turning around results within 24 hours. And because you're doing things so quickly, one way of getting some sense check that errors haven't crept in and avoiding the fact that you know, every model is different and every researcher has their own approach is then comparing across models and seeing how consistent the results were. And that was the first instance I am aware of, of that ever really being done, certainly in a real-time context. Of course, 2001 was also the year of 9-11 and of the anthrax releases, deliberate anthrax releases in the United States. And that led to much greater focus in many high-income countries like the UK and US on uh, contingency planning as well. The origins of what is now called the UK National Risk Register came out of that experience And within that, whilst risk assessment isn't the same as infectious disease modelling, there is an overlap between them, um, and a more quantitative approach to risk assessment emerged out of that at a national level.
0: Today's National Risk Register is a document detailing the respective threat posed by a wide manner of scenarios. Terrorist attacks, infrastructure faults, trade disruptions, and alongside the detailed descriptions of each is a simplified score of both their likelihood – and their potential severity on a scale of 1 to 5. A global pandemic is currently still the highest-ranked threat to the UK. 2003 brought with it a painful lesson of just how susceptible the world was to disease threats, in the form of the highly severe SARS-CoV-1, and outlined the ways in which global cooperation would need to be bolstered. So in retrospect, the first SARS case was detected in
1: November 2002 in southern China, That wasn't recognised until somewhat later, though. So I think I became aware of it around February, March 2003. It started causing explosive outbreaks, particularly associated with hospitals in Hong Kong, Singapore, Vietnam, and and then later in in Canada as well. So 2003 was a wake-up call. It didn't cause a pandemic, it might have done, wasn't much evidence of mildly infected or asymptomatic people, and it was only people with severe symptoms who seemed to be transmitting, and that meant it could be controlled by detecting cases and isolating them and contact tracing. But it was still a wake-up call in the need for a kind of coordinated global response. Uh, So we were working very closely with the World Health Organization at that time, and each individual country in the world, also with the UK government, which also was putting in place contingency plans for dealing with outbreaks... And I think there was good cooperation, but somewhat ad hoc between countries and globally at the time. But it did lead to some long term changes to how we respond to these outbreaks globally and the introduction of something called the International Health Regulation by the UN and World Health Organization, which mandates countries to report unexplained outbreaks like this and share data. Not a perfect system, but
0: better than what we had before. If you're not actively keeping an eye out for new diseases, you might not know about it until it's too late, when the disease has already spread beyond what can be contained. And that doesn't just mean keeping an eye on human illnesses. You need to keep an eye on animal disease too. One of our most prolific viruses, influenza, has strains that circulate widely in birds. And in 2005, you may remember the concern raised due to the rapid spread of a highly severe strain of bird flu, H5N1. So the challenge
1: with emerging infectious disease outbreaks like H5N1 bird flu is that what we know now from improvements in surveillance, studying animal populations, looking for unexplained infections in people, is we're constantly exposed to animal viruses and people get infected all the time with animal viruses, obviously not as commonly as they do with human viruses. And most of those infections are probably called mild, if any, disease, and most of them are dead end. The virus is not adapted to humans and so it doesn't transmit onwards. What we're concerned about being able to detect is that rare, very rare instance of a virus, typically an animal virus, infecting a person or a cluster of people and then being able to spread. And then maybe evolve and spread better, causing a self-sustaining outbreak within the human population, because that's the origin of all human pandemics. It's you know what happened with SARS? It's what happened with, we think, with COVID, what happens with every flu pandemic. And so the earlier we can pick up that initial cluster of cases, the more time we have to respond, we have maybe even a potential to snuff the outbreak out at source before it causes a big epidemic or a pandemic. So I first became aware of H5N1 all the way back in 1997 when it caused an outbreak in Hong Kong. And the worrying thing about that outbreak was, I think, something like 18 people were directly infected by exposure to infected poultry, of which I think six died. And that was the first instance that we realised first that avian influenza viruses could directly infect people and could be really quite lethal. And so that caused major concerns even back then the Hong Kong government controlled the outbreak through mass culling of poultry and then things went a little quiet for many years until about 2003 roughly where outbreaks in poultry farms started being detected across Southeast Asia and after that some human cases also detected and in the context of SARS which had just been you know a near pandemic and certainly caused massive economic disruption in the world. That led to many governments being concerned about the risk potentially posed by H5N1. And so that triggered a lot of investment in boosting surveillance for novel infections, particularly in Southeast Asia, but globally. But also in pandemic preparedness, thinking about you know how do we respond to emerging infectious disease outbreaks, how feasible is it to contain them at source, a bit like was eventually achieved with um, SARS. If we don't succeed in containing outbreaks, then what can we do to mitigate spread or certainly mitigate disease, reduce the burden of disease in the population, how how do we respond to a pandemic? All
0: questions which came to the fore, of course, during COVID. The threat of a novel flu was not ignored. In the 2008 edition of the UK's National Risk Register, pandemic influenza specifically was listed as the top threat to the nation. No sooner had work begun on a new era of pandemic planning, when an opportunity quickly arose to put the last 10 years' lessons to the test, with a new flu pandemic, this time of H1N1. So the 2009
1: H1N1 pandemic, whilst the pandemic almost certainly started somewhere in Mexico, the first cases were tested so that it could be identified that this was not an existing circulating human flu virus. I think we're in California. And so what we rapidly realised is that this was a very different sort of epidemic from SARS. I mean, the fact that it had taken until cases popped up in California to detect it implied it had lower severity than SARS. Whilst we did see clusters of severe cases in hospitals in Mexico City, by the time the outbreak had been detected it had already spread across multiple countries. And that's a kind of signature of of a lower pathogenicity disease. That said, doesn't mean it was something we could relax about. As we know from COVID, even a 1% infection fatality ratio, 1% of people infected dying, can cause a massive public health crisis worldwide with other consequences. So, we worked very closely with colleagues at CDC and in, in, in Mexico at trying to characterize both the transmissibility of this new flu virus but also its severity. And that quickly indicated we weren't in the kind of 1918 pandemic territory of a very, very you know severe pandemic, more in the territory of 1957 or 1968, much lower mortality. And the way we did this is and something which has been used multiple times since is to and was used in COVID as well, is to look at detection of cases at borders. Because as soon as alerts went out for there was a potential new flu virus circulating and potential pandemic, countries like the UK, US, many other countries put in place surveillance at airports for people with flu-like symptoms who are then tested and so paradoxically you get a more sensitive surveillance system at borders than you do necessarily in the epicentre of the epidemic where you can assume they have many thousands of cases not able to test them all and that comparison of numbers of cases being reported in the source location versus number being detected at borders allows you to come up with some assessment of, of severity in that way. Also, because a lot of effort had been put into pandemic planning and resourcing in countries like the UK before the pandemic, the UK actually had a large stockpile of antiviral drugs to deploy during the pandemic. The other thing which, I mean, that pandemic tested, though, was our ability to rapidly produce vaccines. Whilst it was expected to take months, I mean, we did, I think, a little less well than certainly we would want to do now and, than we did during covid We became aware of the pandemic February-March 2009, but it really was only towards the very end of the year we had large stockpiles of vaccine to give out, Um, and that just reflects the vaccine production pipeline. We know how to make flu vaccines, but it takes quite a long time. And of course, we did somewhat better given we were starting completely from scratch with
0: COVID. These sophisticated vaccine pipelines and screening diagnostics were proving themselves as invaluable tools in pandemic prevention. The downside is that these are all resource-intensive, not just needing money, but lab space, scientific expertise and public outreach. Some of the most devastating severe diseases of the last 20 years have sadly also been, in the parts of the world, least equipped to respond to them, a challenge that we're still facing today. I mean, the prime
1: example I've worked on of very severe diseases affecting the poorest communities in the world were in the kind of 2014 Ebola epidemic in West Africa, which affected Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea, Um, by far the largest Ebola outbreak we have seen worldwide, um, reported cases about 20,000, but there could have been many more. And the reason the outbreak got so large was because local health authorities were overwhelmed. And frankly, the world did not respond early enough to help. Ebola is a very severe disease. Roughly two-thirds of people who get infected die. There's particular risks around hospitalized cases in terms of infecting healthcare workers. So you need very intensive personal protective equipment. You need to isolate cases very quickly and and contact trace their contacts, isolate contacts, and that's very resource intensive. And so once you get up to the hundreds of cases, you need very large teams of people and resources to respond to that, which, I mean, those three countries with very limited healthcare systems in some cases just were unable to do. And that's an example of outbreaks where the world has to come together to help. I mean, frankly, the UK, if we were suddenly faced with 100 Ebola cases, we would struggle in the first few weeks to deal with that number of cases, given how many isolation beds we have in the UK. I mean, the reasons Ebola outbreaks happen in those countries are less to do with the income status of those countries, more to do with primate populations and the
0: environment. But the ability to respond varies dramatically by country. And that brings us, more or less, up to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the lessons of those last 25 years can be seen in the global response. The incredibly early detection, the outstandingly rapid development of multiple vaccines, the provision of fast and detailed data streams – these are all part of the continuing evolution of our scientific capabilities in response to disease threats. If you're very lucky, COVID-19 may have been the first epidemic to affect you directly, but it sadly probably won't be the last. In the last two years, Neil and the wider Imperial team have already been working on responding to multiple new outbreaks.
1: Marburg. Monkeypox. We're constantly seeing new outbreaks, new Ebola outbreaks, and a closely related virus called Marburg in sub-Saharan Africa. Thankfully, The ones we've seen recently have been more rapidly contained than previous outbreaks. So we're doing better there. Surveillance has improved, responses have improved. We have vaccines for Ebola, not yet for Marburg, but those are being worked on. And as you say, we saw monkeypox emerge, which has always been recognised as a potential emerging infectious disease threat. I should not use the term monkeypox. The formal term now is MPOX. So in addition to all these emerging infectious disease outbreaks um, we've talked about, there's then a set of intersectional challenges just beyond that. So beyond just infectious diseases, there are other health crises happening all the time associated, most in the news, extreme weather events, you know, heat waves, floods, everything else. And often there's an intersection between Chronic diseases, non-infectious diseases and infectious diseases in that way. Primary example is that people in the COVID pandemic were much more likely to die from COVID if they had pre-existing what are called comorbidities like diabetes than uh, somebody who didn't. Things like climate change are affecting both types of disease and and, and generate particular crises, and particularly associated with extreme climate events. Extreme flooding can be associated with cholera outbreaks, but can also be associated with heat-related death. And so we wanted to create a capability for a much more multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary analysis capacity, which could look at the intersections between health systems, climate change, chronic and infectious diseases. And put that also, importantly, into an economic context, so have health economics integrated as well. And so that's really the very general mission of the Jamil Institute, is combating disease threats worldwide. But that disease includes non-infectious and infectious disease in, in that context.
0: This new area of understanding that Neil talks about, these intersectionalities, represent a brand new chapter in the history of public health research. Increasingly, we're growing our understanding of how so many systems and sectors of our world influence each other, and how understanding those interactions between our climates, our animals, our societies, our economies, and yes, our mathematical models, can lead to better global health. You're going to hear a lot about the individual work going into this new chapter in the coming episodes – And Neil is just as much a part of that new chapter as he has been for the last 25 years.
1: So I think what's occupying most of my time from a research perspective, and I'm not just in kind of committee meetings, um, is that issue of the relationship between climate, weather you might even say, and infectious diseases. So understanding how rainfall, temperature affect particularly mosquito populations. I've worked on dengue virus my entire career say mosquito-borne virus over half the world's population is at some risk of dengue infection. and It's it's a virus which is spread in terms of its geographic range. Better understanding what's going to happen in future, how sensitive are epidemics to extreme weather events will help us plan into the future as vaccines becoming available. And we're doing that across multiple disease areas. Quite an interesting technical uh, project, but with immediate policy relevance. I've always tried to carve out some time to carry on, which not everybody does, but it's important to me to have time where I actually do some analysis and modelling myself. But I have to say, yes, that's probably now only at most 25% of my time, though it it got higher at some stages in the pandemic. I think, I mean, one of the things I reflect on within the Jamil Institute and more widely at Imperial and School of Public Health is we have an enormous number of talented people, but it does require effort to harness that talent, to have a strategy for going forwards, for ensuring people have the best career opportunities, that we're most helpful to our public health partners. And that all requires work and coordination, requires raising funding, creating partnerships. And it's whilst it's very different from coding and modelling, it can be equally rewarding can also be frustrating at times as well, but generally it's more on the positive than the negative side.
0: 30 years of pandemic response in under 30 minutes. Did you get all that? Neil continues to shape the trajectory of public health work at Imperial and this year took up the role of Director of the School of Public Health. You can hear all the latest breakthroughs as they happen by following the school on Twitter at at imperial sph and if it's a deeper dive you want into what the day-to-day looks like well you can tune in next week i'm tom rawson and thanks for listening